Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. In this strange 2020 season, the things we talk about but usually don't happen are happening. Case in point, Penn State versus Indiana. It's the end of the game. Up one, all Penn State has to do is get a first down and run out the clock. It's actually not to their advantage to score. The only thing Indiana can do to have a chance is to let them score. The intricacies involved in coaching this up on either side of it come down to preparation. On today's podcast, former head coach Rob Ash and I discuss a lot of these situations, including letting a team score as well as knowing not to score. Simply stated, it's something that needs to be practiced, and there should be a mechanism for both those things, for the offense to not score and for the defense to let them score. And we talk about a number of analytic situations, including that I think there's a lot to learn from this one. This is from the archives, but it's worth posting again, especially with some of the things that are happening this season. Check out Coach Ash's free course on CoachTube called The Analytics of Two-Point Conversions. You might be surprised. He shows some decisions from recent games and analyzes those in this course. You're going to find it fascinating. This game did come down to two-point conversions for sure. I share that in two courses from CoachTube, one from Kevin Kelly, a guest on the podcast, and Tim Delaney, who's also been a guest on the podcast. They have courses on two-point conversions on CoachTube, and I'll share those in our links as well. My guest today is former college head football coach and current director of coaching development at Championship Analytics, Coach Rob Ash. Coach, it's great to have you here on the podcast. Well, thank you. Glad to be here, Keith. Coach, I am really excited to dig into our topic of coaching analytics today. I think it's it's something that most programs haven't even thought about, but there's so much opportunity in looking at the game and the way that you guys do and some of the things you guys are doing at Championship Analytics. Before we get into that, Coach, I want to talk a little bit about your journey as a coach. You were a head football coach, finished up at Montana State. Prior to that, you were at Drake and Division Three Juniata, and you had a, a great career, an FCS record of 171 and 84, over 200 wins in your career, which is a huge accomplishment in and of itself. And I know you had a great pl- playing career as well at Cornell College, where you earned little All-America honors. So, Coach, as you look back 
at that time prior to coaching, you're finishing up being a player. What was it that spurred you to want to be a football coach? Well, I, it was an interesting story, Keith, because I, I always enjoyed playing I, high school and college ball, small college, but it was fun. I had a great time, actually, multi-sports. I played basketball and tennis in college, too, but football was always my favorite sport. And, and finished up in college, I thought that I would go on and, and get a graduate degree. And my goal was to be a college professor. That's what I thought I would do. I thought I would leave the sports behind. So I went to Michigan, not as a GA or, or any football-related reasons so I went to graduate school in German history that was my major and thought I would get my doctorate and so forth but I really missed football so for two years of that master's degree program I just missed football so I what does a what does a guy do when you're in that crossroads of your life you call your football coach and so that's what I did I called my college coach and he invited me to come back and, and be a GA and, and work at Cornell College so I did I came back and and started coaching. There was a job that opened up. I was very fortunate. Got a position early on the staff there. And then after five years as an assistant, I got an opportunity to go out to Juniata College in Pennsylvania and be a head coach at age 27. So been a head coach. I was a head coach for 36 years from age 27 to whatever that adds up to. And you know, like I tell my wife, I'm not very good at following orders. I've always been in charge. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting that you started 27 years old as a head football coach at the college level. That had to be a challenge in and of itself to take over a team really that early in your career. What were some of the things that you learned along the way that really prepared you you for that opportunity? Well, first of all, the the game always fascinated me from the, the, the mechanics of the game, the chess game of football. That's what always fascinated me. And I, I had played quarterback and then I was an offensive coordinator and I'd love to watch film and try to figure out the strategies of the game and try to try. It felt like we were pretty innovative as a college football program. When I played, we ran the Houston deer before that was really very common and was pretty innovative. And then we added on a kind of a wide open passing attack. And I, I took those concepts with me to Juniata and, and we were very successful because we were back in the day, this was in the eighties in Pennsylvania, everybody was running I formation, tight ends, the old Penn state stuff. And, and we were running the option and throwing the ball all over the place. And that kind of gave us a, a niche where we could, get some things done in a, in a, in a, at a school that was very difficult to recruit to. It was a great little school, but it was just hard to find and hard to spell, hard to pronounce. <laughs> and so it was, it was a big challenge, but I think just being a younger coach, we were, we were pretty innovative and I think that helped us a lot. You continue to grow as a coach and you moved into a new role at Drake university. Looking at your, your time there, putting together a successful program there, what were the keys to creating that kind of program that was going to have success year in and year out? Well, that was an interesting challenge going to Drake because Drake was going through a massive transition with their football program. They had been a scholarship program in Division One, one college division back in the day in the Missouri Valley Conference, and then they decided to go to non-scholarship football. So when I came in, Drake was just starting the, that kind of a program. We only had two years of 
uh, kids, freshmen and sophomores in the program that were non-scholarship players. Anyway, no conference to play in. We were not eligible for the Division Three national playoffs because of some quirks of the rules that had been put in place. So it was a big challenge, and, and I'm very proud of one of the things that we accomplished while I was there at Drake for all those years. Is that I was on the ground floor with a few other coaches and athletic directors in the formation of the Pioneer Football League. And the, that league was a, a terrific answer to the, the issues that private schools, smaller private schools in Division One, had about trying to play football, which was with scholarships in all the other sports, primarily basketball, but no scholarships in football. It was very difficult to find a, a place to call home in the in the structure of NCAA football, and, and the Pioneer League was an answer. The Pioneer Football League brought together teams from all over the country that were very similar in philosophy, small private Division One schools with scholarships in Every other sport except football, no scholarships in football. So that became the rule of how the Pioneer League was established. And we created some great rivalries, Dayton, Butler, San Diego, and Drake, along with Evansville, who eventually dropped football. Those were the charter members, also Valparaiso. And the league has since grown, added Jacksonville and Davidson and and several other schools now. And I guess looking at it, it didn't happen while I was there, but we got good enough. Jim Harbaugh coached in that league at San Diego. We had some really good teams at Drake. And now the Pioneer League has full status in FCS football. Pioneer League has an automatic berth in the FCS playoffs. And the Pioneer League has won a couple of playoff games here in the last couple of years. So it was really, really a cool accomplishment to to see that happen to to try to create a home for for football for these schools that were very similar in philosophy but just weren't very close together geographically. And most conferences prior to the last ten years or so, when the, the things have kind of exploded, the conferences used to be based on geography, and the Pioneer League was really a pioneering effort in putting a conference together based on philosophy instead of geography. Coach, you spent a lot of time there from 1989 to 2006, and you had a lot of success along the way. Not very many uh, losing seasons, I think only two in your time there. And you have those guys performing at a high level. Obviously, not it's not quite Division Three, but it's not scholarship football, so you're getting some good athletes there. How are you bringing those two guys together? into a team and, and what was your philosophy on building the culture and building a program? Well, first of all, we did have some great athletes. There was a lot, there were a lot of players out there, young men who wanted to go to college primarily for academics, but were really good football players. And so we looked at kind of Ivy league type families, people who wanted education first, but still wanted to play football. And, and I guess the thing that happened since the getting paid per se to play with a scholarship. They had good financial aid, but it was based mm-hmm. on their family's financial need. So we had guys who just loved to play. They played for the right reasons. And, and I think that's the first thing that we built upon was just taking a bunch of guys who had a great love for the game. And, and then we, we just created a culture of, of team first. It wasn't any, there wasn't any hierarchy on our program for superstars or for special treatment. Everybody had to, to do their job. Everybody had to play for the team and the team was the most important thing. And, and we got to be, we got to be pretty good. We worked hard in the off season. We ran the football. 
extremely well. We would throw the ball, get uh, we were wide open in the early part of games, and then in the fourth quarter with a lead, we were able to run the football and control the game, and that kind of became our our mo for for being successful. We went through a lot of coaches. A lot of coaches came came and went through the time that I was there. Several guys went on to tremendous careers, and that was always an interesting thing too. Keith, because Drake didn't have the physical education department. There weren't any coaching classes. There were no fluff courses of any kind. It was a very good academic school and not really geared toward preparation for coaching. Guys came in and they were majors in all the academic areas. And, but yet many guys that played for me went on to coaching careers, I think, once again, because they just loved the game and wanted to continue to stay in it. From Drake, you move on to Montana State and the Big Sky Conference and FCS football, scholarship football. You guys have multiple appearances in the FCS playoffs. How does that change, I guess, in philosophy? Is it still a team first, even though you have some scholarship players now? What are you doing to take that athlete who obviously is of high status? I mean, even FCS, you're getting some really good athletes at that level and I'm sure some egos along the way too. How do you bring that together? Yeah. Well, that was an interesting move because you know, I wanted to wanted to try to get into the national playoff picture at an FCS school. Montana State was was awesome to give me that opportunity, and we did. We recruited hard. We had established a pipeline to Texas from Montana, which seems kind of unlikely, mm-hmm. but. Like we always joked, the kids in Texas were similar to the ones in Montana because they they knew what cowboy boots and rodeos were all about. So, and football, football was really important to in the to the players in Montana and the, and the players we recruited from Texas, same thing. And yeah, I mean, it was still team first. It was still the the idea of trying to win the Big Sky and go into the national playoffs and try to win the national championship. And we got to play on ESPN a couple of times and playoff games and. We had very good success, won several championships, got to hoist the banners in the in the field house and got the championship rings and that was the culture we created there was and but at the same time there had been some issues there prior to that with lack of emphasis on academic performance and, and off the field behavior and we changed that culture dramatically to the point where our players were extremely highly regarded on campus by the faculty and the administration and by the community. For the way they behaved and, and deported themselves and the emphasis they put on their academics while still being very, very successful on the field. And so looking back on that, I think that's the, the, the most rewarding piece of it for me is that we were able to do this. We won, but we won the right way with, with players who really were committed to academics and, and representing the university properly. Coach, after Montana State and before your current role, at Championship Analytics, you spent a year as an offensive analyst at Arkansas. What was that like for you? You said being that guy who always was in charge, now stepping back into a position where obviously you're looking more at the analytics of the game and not even necessarily doing the on-field coaching. Right. I wasn't on the field there, and that, that that was difficult for me after all those years of being on the field. And many of those years I called plays as an offensive coordinator, even while I was head coach and so yeah that was tough but I, I got to thank Brett Bielema at Arkansas for giving me an opportunity to to coach a year in the SEC that was always a dream of mine to kind of see what it was like at that level always having been 
primarily at the FCS level for many, many years. And it was a tremendous experience. I I got to research all of the opponents we were going to play that year. I was an offensive analyst, so I researched the offenses that was right up my alley. Yeah, it was difficult not to coach on the field. It was difficult not to be in charge. But I learned a lot from Coach Bielema watching him. He's a terrific person and a great head football coach, a very ethical guy, follows the rules, cares passionately about his players. And it was a, it was a tremendous experience. We got to go to a bowl game. We had some tremendous victories that were exciting. We beat Florida that year. We beat Old Miss. We beat Mississippi State. And it was to beat TCU. I mean, it was really it was a fun, fun year. And, and I was down in the catacombs doing research, though, about 12 or 14 hours a day on the on the video. And, and at my age and, and not being on the field, I decided that I needed to try to break out and do something else. And, and the, this was sort of the the hedge between coaching and the analytics job because Coach Bielema, I'll give him credit, he had talked to our company about using championship analytics. I had used it at Montana State, and then I talked to Brett about it, and he signed up to use it at Arkansas, brought me down to help run the program for him down there. And so that that year was sort of a transition between my coaching career and my career now with championship analytics. You guys were one of the first – clients of of CAI at Montana State for you you know you mentioned that it was really a game changer for you especially in terms of when to go for it on fourth down and and how to manage a clock and timeouts etc at the end of the game a lot of guys leave that to feel you hear guys talk about that all the time well it's just a feel I have but I'm seeing more and more number one the analyst jobs starting to really become a, a part of this game. And number two, guys not necessarily going by feel anymore, that they're looking for those money ball type of situations, which you see happening in baseball all the time. You see it in basketball now. I think it's starting to take hold in football, but it still seems to be in its infancy. With that in mind, what do you see overall as the future for analytics in football? Well, I think you're exactly right about you, know, you hit the nail on the head about analytics providing coaches with the tools that they can use to make decisions based on numbers and probability and statistics and real chances of success as opposed to just going with your gut. And it's starting to take hold, absolutely. When I signed up at Montana State in 2014, there were only three schools in the country using the products of championship analytics. Now, this coming year, we'll have 75 or 80 college football teams, a couple of NFL teams, hopefully, that will be using our materials. And it, it definitely is a game changer. And what it really comes down to is, instead of going through the old the old litany, like the things I learned growing up from my coaches, was field position was absolutely everything. So it didn't matter if it was fourth and six inches, if you were at the 50-yard line or at your own 40-yard line, you punted the football. I mean, changing field position was the only factor to take into consideration. The other mantra was always take the points when you're down in the red zone. Take the field goal. Take the field goal. Fourth doesn't matter. Fourth down. Well, what the analytics has brought to the table is the, the probability of success on fourth and short. The probability of success on fourth and short, fourth and one, for example, was converted 74% of the time in 
Power 5 football last year. I mean, that's a powerful percentage of success that you can't ignore when you've got an opportunity to increase the number of points on a certain possession. So if it's fourth and one at the 50-yard line and you have a 74% chance of success to, to convert that and keep the opportunity for points alive on that drive, and you punt the ball away, I mean, you basically, what you've done, of course, is you've, you've accepted zero points on that possession instead of taking a 74% chance to get more points on that possession. It's like getting your service broken in tennis. You miss an opportunity there that's, that has a very high probability chance of success. Same thing down in the red zone. If it's fourth and one at the 10 and you kick a field goal, you're accepting three points there instead of seven. That's if you make the field goal. Mm -hmm. Field goals are only converted 66% of the time in college football, so that's far from a sure thing at any distance for college kickers. And you have a 75% chance of converting that fourth and one and getting a touchdown. And so your math now is telling you it's all about probabilities. It's about your percentage chance of success. If you have that high a chance of success, which the analytics tells you about, then you need to make the effort to go try it. And then what? What one thing leads to another, because if you have a third and five, and you know the analytics tells you from the championship analytics has an ingenious game book that our founder invented, and it's our premier tool that we use in, in the championship analytics company. But this game book tells the coaches what the best practice is going to be on every fourth down situation in the game. So you know on, on first down that maybe at fourth and two on that particular series of plays, the fourth and two or less is going to be mathematically the best bet is going to be to go for it. So going back to my situation, if it's third and five and you have a fourth and two or fourth and one that's going to be a go-for-it situation, then third and five can become third and three. You can run the football on third and five. And if you gain two or three yards and get into the fourth and two or one where you have a good chance of success, then you can use that fourth down, convert the drive with a very high probability of success, and keep the ball away from the other team, advance the ball in field position, and keep your opportunity for points alive. So the, the here's that's where the that's the the piece of it that I think the teams are starting to figure out is not just randomly going for it on a fourth and one that crops up accidentally, but setting themselves up for short fourth and ones or fourth and twos that are readily converted, frequently converted, and then using that extra down to keep drives alive and keep the opportunity for more points alive. And that, that's, that's one of the most fascinating parts of this whole program is how it changes not just your fourth down mentality, but your third down, sometimes even your second down mentality as you're incorporating that extra down into your strategy decisions. Coach, how does this play into the thought process of teams that are about up-tempo? When you hear some of the, of the up-tempo coordinators talk about what they're going to do is they just want to call plays at a fast clip as fast as they can. How would something like these analytics play into that and trying to, I guess, put that thought process into their mind so that as you, you're in a drive, I mean, you might know that this is a situation we're going to get that we have four downs. Cause I think that's, that's important. When the coordinator knows you have four downs, it certainly starts to change how you think about that series and what you're going to call. 
totally. And I, I don't think it makes any difference at all what tempo you play at as far as utilizing the recommendations in the CAI game book because it is such an ingenious platform. You know as soon as the first down occurs what the fourth down recommendation is. So I don't care how fast your call and plays, you still have first down, second down, and third down to think about what that fourth down recommendation is and, and whether or not you want to sequence your plays into that fourth down recommendation. I mean, no matter how fast you go, you're going to know on first down that fourth and two or less, let's say, or fourth and three or less, whatever the number is, is going to be a go. So now as you call second down and then again third down, you can incorporate that recommendation in and, and make a decision uh, if you want to try to play for that fourth down or not. I mean, it, it, it still comes down to it. You still don't have to – you don't have to run the ball on every third and five. I mean, if it's third and five and you're a passing team and you're up-tempo and you think you've got a great pass play that can get you five yards, then you call that play. And if mm -hmm. you miss and it's fourth and five, then you'll punt or settle for the field goal. But if you felt like that was the best way to, to keep that drive alive, then that's the play you call. But if it's third and five and fourth and two or less is a go and you want to try to get it in two pieces, then you can make a different call. So the entire playbook is open. It's not restrictive. CAI doesn't get into telling coaches you should run here, you should pass here, you should use 10 personnel here, 11 personnel here. We don't get into scheme at all. We simply say to the coaches, okay, at fourth and two or less, the math says you have a better chance to win this football game if you go for it than if you kick it away. And then the coach can decide if and how he wants to try to follow that recommendation. Coach, you were a client of CAI at Montana State. And obviously we talked about how this plays into game day decisions. But how much of this really started to become part of your game planning and how you put together your plans for different situations, maybe even looking at things like how you might game plan a second half? Right. It was it was a game changer for sure. I in two thousand thirteen, before I was a client of championship analytics, I our team went for it on fourth down, I think eleven times all year. So an average of about once a game. And then the next year, two thousand fourteen at Montana State, we tried fourth downs twenty seven times and the following year in two thousand fifteen I think it was thirty six times we went for it on fourth down. So we became much, much more aggressive on fourth downs, and that changed our game planning dramatically. And I used to carry just one fourth down call for a fourth and one in a game, and I had one call for a fourth and two to three, et cetera, just one, one call on my call sheet. And, of course, if we're going to go 27 times in a season or 36 times in a season, you have to have several more calls for each of those possible fourth down situations. So we had four or five calls for a fourth and one and a few other calls for a fourth and two to three. So we created more fourth down calls. We practiced more short yardage situations. And you say, well, where did you find the time for that? Well, the time for that came from the reduction in third and long calls that we that we needed on the call sheet because we were not going to be trying to get the entire first down as many times on third and long in games because many times we were going to sequence a couple of plays together, try to get make that third and long into a fourth and short, and then go for it off of that call sheet with the fourth down plays. So it dramatically changed our, our call sheet and the, the kinds of plays that we wanted to work with. But it, you can just, you can just see how this operates as you think about the call sheet there with a lot more short yardage calls 
fourth and ones, fourth and twos, fourth and three to fours, so forth. Obviously, you're at shorter yardages when you're trying to, to be successful, and you're going to be more successful more often of the time at shorter yardages than you are at longer yardages. And so, for example, the, the proof for us in 2015 came in the red zone where that season at Montana State, we had 55 red zone possessions and we had 45 touchdowns. We also had five field goals. So once in a while, we did kick field goals when it was long yardage and we got stopped on a third down run or incomplete pass or something. So we did kick a few field goals, but primarily we got touchdowns in the red zone and it contributed to a very successful season. So that was the proof. Now, as far as the, the other piece of the game planning, what championship analytics does in addition to the fourth down tool with game book, championship analytics also teaches coaches about game management, strategy, clock management, timeout usage, two point plays, lots, every strategy decision you can imagine that would come up in a game. And a lot of that teaching is, is done just through the analysis of strategy decisions that happen during, during every week in the season. So our team will look at all these games, we're watching games, and we see situations where maybe a team fails to call timeout on defense when they could save 40 seconds, and then later on they use that timeout on offense, and they save themselves 22 seconds. And so that's analytics. That's 18 seconds that we show them they could have added to their amount of time that they had to operate at the end of the game just by when they called their timeouts. Or we'll work with teams to save timeouts. A lot of teams will use a timeout as a, a get-out-of-jail-free card in the third quarter when they're in a bad formation on offense or defense or the shot clock's running down. And then at the end of the game, when they need that timeout desperately to try to get the ball back or preserve time on a drive to win, they just don't have it. And so that's the analytics, again, is just how many seconds did you leave off the table that you could not use because you wasted a timeout earlier in the game. So what we, what we find our teams doing is spending more time in situational practice. That's what happened to us at Montana state happened to us at Arkansas, where you start to use, you start to think about these situations. You teach the players about the value of timeouts. You teach the players that there are times when you're on offense and you don't want to score. I mean, if you can get a first down and then take a knee and the game will be over, then even if you break in the clear, the analytics says you should not score because you have a, a 100% chance to win that game if you take a knee and if you have a lot, some kind of reduced chance to win that game if you score, give the ball back to the other team, then they have a chance to try to come back and, and even up the game. So many, many situations. We call it scenario training. And I found as a coach at Montana State, even though I had coached for almost 40 years, that there were still scenarios that came up every week in college football that the analytics team would show me in which we now show our teams that coaches mismanaged the clock or didn't understand how the, you know, how the end game needed to be played. And, and we have, we've been able to help many, many teams become better at finishing games with, with strategy and then practicing those situations that they need to know to finish games with the right strategy. Coach, on the flip side of that, that time management, is there anything within what you guys do that tell a team when they're on defense, for example, to as they the approach, they get in the red zone, maybe they're getting close to the goal line, to let them score? 
Oh, absolutely. I think that's a that's a big one that is really really hard for for teams and defensive coordinators to to stomach. But it, there are times, absolutely, when your only chance to win the game is going to be to let the other team score. It's particularly hard to do if you're up by a point or two, let's say. But if the other team is inside the 10 and there's a minute and a half left and they can just take a knee three times, run the clock down to zero, and then kick a chip shot field goal that has a 98.5% chance of of being good and beat you by one point, that's not a very good scenario for victory to let them take those three knees and then try to you your only pathway to victory is to try to hope they miss a 98.5% chance field goal or it's you're going to block one that almost never happens. So your pathway to, to victory there has to be to let them score so that you can have a chance to answer. And that's that's difficult for for people to to stomach like I said, but it's also critical to do. So we, we have charts that tell teams when they should allow the other team to score. And it actually happened accidentally for us at Arkansas. We were playing TCU and TCU was ahead 21 to 20 with about two minutes left in the game, third and one at the five yard line. And they ran an option play and Kenny Hill actually not only got the first down there, but he scored. Well, by scoring, they went ahead by eight points. They kicked the extra point. We got the ball back, went down, scored, converted a two-point conversion, got in overtime, and beat them in overtime. TCU could have won that game if, if the offensive player would have taken a knee after he got the first down. It was third and one at the five. So if he got the yardage for the first down, if he would have just slid down at the two-yard line, not scored, then they could have taken a knee and the game would have been over. On the flip side, we should have – played this you said how does this impact defense this is a pretty interesting one because one of the second best option for Arkansas at that point in time would have been to let him score the first best option for Arkansas in that situation would have been to stop him short of the third and one then TCU would have had to settle for a field goal and an ensuing touchdown by Arkansas would have won the game without having to go to overtime so the defense needed to play that one with maybe 11 guys up on the line all out blitz some kind of all or nothing type of a defensive right. deployment there to stop the third down play. Second best option being if that doesn't work, then let them score. And the only option that really wasn't favorable for Arkansas there would have been the first down, but no touchdown for TCU because then they could have taken a knee and won the game 21 to 20. So yeah, there are situations that affect the defensive side of the ball. Absolutely for sure. And sometimes they're, they're unusual to think about in the sense of, I mean, back in the day when I started coaching, the idea of letting the other team score, I think, was, was would have been highly radical. I can, I can remember a couple of very adventurous coaches who you know, may have done it in a dire situation, but it certainly wasn't something that we based at that time on any the numbers and analytics. But now the numbers and the analytics are providing very factual, numerical, quantified, rationale for why this is the right thing to do yeah i get it i I can remember i had the situation come up one time was actually my first year as a head high school coach and the uh, we were up i think maybe by four and the other team was driving and kind of all day it was they would have slow drives and score and we would get the ball and score quick and time was just running out and i 
talked to my offensive coordinator. I said, do you think we should let him score right here and get our offense back on the field? And his answer was, no, something's going to happen. Well, next play, they're on the one. <laughs> and <laughs> fortunately, though, I see a flag come out, and I thought it was on our players out of frustration. Well, it turns out it was the head coach from the other team, his wife, was down the sideline cheering the other team on, not in their player's box. And one of the officials said, if you're with the team, she had all the team gear on, you you need to be in the player's box or you need to be in the stands. Well, she had some very unkind words for him, and the flag came out, moved him back. Long story short, we had a sack the next play, and they didn't score. <laughs> so something did wow. happen, but I don't think any kind of analytics cover the coach's wife, MF, and the official to uh, win no. the game. So, but but looking <laughs> at that coach, thinking about it, yeah, put that you, one's not covered in our materials. <laughs> no, yeah. putting your coaching hat back on and thinking of that situation with TCU, it almost seems like you better start practicing those kinds of things if you have that kind of information for example, in your four-minute offense that your team needs to know somehow through your procedures, through them coming off the sideline knowing we cannot score under no circumstance do Mm -hmm. we want the ball in the end zone, but you can't get players to do that unless you're really working that and putting that into the thought process. Oh, you're absolutely right, and that's one one of the focal points of our services and our program with the teams who are clients of ours and in my title director of coaching development i'm trying to help our coaches develop their skills for managing these these game strategy decisions so yes so there are there are some game strategy decisions that involve the player execution of something like we're talking about here and that has to be practiced so for example our best teams will tag they'll have a code word that basically says, don't score. Somebody might say they might tag, they'll call their play and tag it with a word like barricade or down or Mm -hmm. something, some word, just no moss, you know, (laughs) whatever. But it's a code word that you you practice and you rehearse it, and everybody on the offense knows what that means. That means that you get your first down and then you go down. And I always use the analogy for years on defense, if we were ahead in the game and – the other team threw the ball down the field in a desperation comeback effort, and we intercepted. So we were ahead. We just intercepted the ball. We always told our defensive guys to go down. Mm-hmm. I mean, every coach in America has done that. That's something we've always done. And we've told our – because we were afraid that he might get tackled and fumble the ball back to the other team, of course, if he tried to run with it after the interception. So we've done it. We've told players on our team to go down. It's just been on defense, and it's just been anathema to think about it on – on offense, but now it, it's not anymore. It's in our, we have a, a packet of situations that we give to our client teams and they, this is one of them, not scoring. There's several other ones. Letting teams score is another one, but there's other ones. There was a, an SEC game a year ago where a beautiful executed play where the team was behind. There were only nine seconds left in the game. They were back behind their, their own 50, back on their own 40 or so. They were down by two, and they were trying to get into field goal range. They hit a dig route to a receiver over the middle with enough yardage for the first down. The defense was playing very soft. Back behind him, this receiver very alertly caught the ball and immediately went down instead of trying to run. And there were three seconds left on the clock. In college football, the clock stops when 
the first down is is made. So there was a minute there, second there for the clock to stop. The team who just completed the pass, unfortunately, had one timeout remaining, so they called their timeout. Then they were able to trot their field goal team out on the field, and, and they made the game-winning field goal. Had that receiver run three or four steps after catching the ball, the clock would have expired while he was running, and there would have been no opportunity to call timeout or get the field goal team on the field. So that was a situation, another one, that had to be tagged with a code word, had to be practiced in preseason camp or spring ball so that every player on the team knew what the situation was and how they were supposed to execute it. So we always tell our, our client teams the games are going to be won or lost on these decisions that we're talking about. It may only happen to you in one game all season, but if it makes a difference in one game, think what one game can do for your season. It might be the difference between going to the bowl game or not or the difference of going to the championship game or not, or winning the championship or not. I mean, one game, I know I bought the services of championship analytics in 2014 at Montana State because I knew one game might make the difference between going to the playoffs or not. And in fact, in 2015, that happened. We made the playoffs because, 2014, we made the playoffs because we stole a game at the end with some great clock management tactics that championship analytics had instructed us to use, and we had rehearsed in the in the off season, and it made the difference. So these situations don't happen frequently, but when they do, it makes a huge difference. Coach, I would think this also starts to change what most of us have as, I guess, standardized two point charts, ones we could print off the internet, or I see at certain clinics they might hand those out to coaches. That maybe they're not. There is not a standard two point chart for every single game that I'm sure you guys come up with things that are going to show a certain team that maybe the two point play is an advantage in a particular game and in a particular situation. Yeah, definitely. Our two point chart is unique and it is unique every week. It's customized to the, the team, the game that, the, that our team is playing. And, and by the way, our fourth down book is customized every week as well it's it changes every week based on who our team is playing you know who their opponent is what the projected score is going to be whether they're the favorite or the underdog if it's going to be a high scoring game or low scoring game home and away how good are the kickers all that is factored into the the fourth down book and all that is also factored into the two-point chart and so the recommendations are are based on just how aggressive you need to be in certain situations there are a couple of interesting ones that are kind of generic, though, that where the math tells coaches to do something that they just have a hard time wrapping their arms around. For example, if you're down by 15 points late in the game and you score a touchdown to cut it to nine prior to the PAT try, everybody in America kicks the ball right there to make it an eight-point deficit, saying to themselves, well, we're going to make it a one-possession game here. Mm-hmm. Well, the math will tell you it's only a one-possession game 50% of the time because you have to make a two-point conversion to make it a one-possession game. Okay. With that in mind, the math definitely tells teams at nine down in the fourth quarter, go for two at that point to find out if you make that two-point conversion or not. Mm-hmm. So you're either going to be down nine or down seven. Obviously, if you make it, you're in great shape. You're down seven, and it truly is a one-possession game. But if you go for it and miss and you're down nine, you say to yourself, well, now we need the ball twice. Yes, 
That's unfortunate that you missed it and you need the ball twice, but you know now that you need the ball twice. You know now that you missed the two-point conversion, and so now you know how to play the rest of the game, trying to speed things up, trying to get the ball back, trying to use your timeouts, maybe have to kick an onside kick or whatever, but you know you need the, need the ball at extra possession because you went for that two-point conversion early and you found out if you made it or not. If you wait, the risk is that you can put everything on that two-point conversion, and if you miss it and there's only a few seconds left in the game, you have no chance to come back, get the ball another time, and try to win the game. So the math in the two-point charts, and there are several of them across the board, being up 12, trying to get to 14, being up by 19, and needing to get up by 21 instead of 20. I mean, there's all kinds of opportunities that the where the math says go for two that coaches just routinely without our services just line up and kick the ball and set themselves up for disappointment coach you've been talking a lot of about a lot of the big programs the fbs programs i know you guys have an nfl client is are your services within reach for the small college or the high school team who's interested in this stuff they are it's still pricey for that level but we do have high school teams that use our services. We do have Division three teams, Division two. We have teams at every level. So, yeah, I mean, anyone at any level that's interested should just get in touch with us through our website at Championship Analytics and just search it on, on the Internet. And we have a contact box there so you can get in touch with us and, and we can make it work. But it, it's not inexpensive. But like I said earlier, if it can change your season – with a dramatic win that you that you steal because you do things right analytically, then whatever you spent on it at any level, you know, is is worth it. Coach, looking at the high school environment, I know analytics are not a necessarily a big part of that. Kevin Kelly at Pulaski Academy, who's been on the podcast, certainly looks at analytics all the time and has a an interesting philosophy on the things he does but that doesn't necessarily fit for every program what are your recommendations for that high school that wants to start looking at the game in a, in a different way what are some of the things that they can start doing right now that maybe they don't have the ability to to afford the service yet but they want to start using analytics in how they look at the game well, first of all, let me say about Kevin Kelly at Pulaski Academy. I think he's a, he's a highly innovative, very creative coach, and I his certainly his his style has captivated the country. Everybody knows about him and what they do. It's not analytics to the extent that they they go for it all the time on fourth down and never punt. I mean, there are times when they're they're defying really what the analytics do say. So. My point being that there are times, many times in games, where the analytics says the right thing to do is punt. And that's so the analytics doesn't always say go for it. I mean, it says this is the prudent thing to do at this point in time. Anyway, as far as high schools, we are working in our company to come up with a, a high school product. And I, I, I'm hopeful that we can trot it out next spring. We're going to, we are working in conjunction with Glazier Clinics, who have a great email base and, and communication base with high school coaches across the country. And the concept we're working on, Keith, is, is sort of like a strategy certification or strategy academy type of thing where coaches could get online and basically take a course from us in applying basic analytics principles to mm -hmm. strategy decisions. 
I think it's it's going to be exciting. So we're about a year ahead. So call me again. I'll be on your podcast again next year, next February or March or something. Maybe I'll be able to, to tell you where and, why and how high school coaches can get online and do this. But I, I think it's, it's definitely a need. There there are many, many easy mathematical principles that you can sort of generically follow in games that will help coaches make better decisions and more give them a higher probability chance of success on individual drives and in games and then in managing the strategy at the end of games. And for our listeners out there, if, if you want to look at all of these things and see the website, it's championshipanalytics.com. Coach, I really appreciate your time. Really interesting topic and stories here. Thank you for sharing all of that, and I definitely look forward to having you back on the podcast. Well, thank you, Keith. It's been a pleasure to be on. You asked a lot of good questions and gave us a great opportunity to talk football, which both of us love to do. So I'm happy to, to be on here on behalf of Championship Analytics, and I'd love to come back in a year or so and give you an update. coaching coordinator podcast check out our new home for the podcast at coachingcoordinator.com and follow me on twitter at coach k grabowski i'll have those links to the coach tube courses on twitter as well as on our webpage.